read the law, the word of God, excuse me, from Matthew 21. Matthew is 1 through 17. Continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew as we again welcome those who are visiting with us today. Hear now God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodged there. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. What do Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, and the Psalms all have in common? Children, you might think, well, they are all in the Old Testament. That's true. They are also all quoted or cited here in this passage we looked at just today. This is an enormous amount of Old Testament references coming all at us in one passage. In about 55 places, Matthew's wording in his gospel is similar enough to be called a quotation, but other allusions and types and shadows and promises of Christ are found throughout this gospel. It reminds us the Bible is not Old Testament God over here, New Testament God here. But it is the plan of the triune God to save his people for himself in Jesus, a people that he has loved, a people that he 
sent his son to die for, a people that he's preserving by grace from Genesis to Revelation. The question before us today is, who is this Jesus who came? Maybe you've heard this Palm Sunday text, even though it's not Palm Sunday today, before. Maybe it's the first time you've read it. Who is this king who rides on a donkey? Who is this high priest who overturned the tables in the temple? First, let's look at Jesus the king who enters Jerusalem. Matthew 21 begins the final week of Jesus' life. An enormous amount of material in the Gospels is devoted to this last week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, to put it in the terms that we are more familiar. Jesus and the disciples have just left Jericho. He healed two blind men. They took the road, which is about 17 miles long, climbing 3,000 feet to Jerusalem. In the Gospel of John, we remember that on Friday, do you remember where Jesus went? to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He has a meal with them. The final Saturday Sabbath ever takes place. He will rise the next Sunday. He goes into their home. He's anointed with oil. He comes out. He pauses at the Mount of Olives. From this place, you can see the whole city of Jerusalem fulfilling Zechariah 14. And then he talks to the disciples about a donkey and a baby donkey. Kids, you might think, what's this? Well, it comes, do you notice in your Bible, verse 9, uh, verse 5? It comes from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Jesus is going back to a day 500 years before. Zechariah the prophet, the days of the renewal of God's promise to them. The temple is being rebuilt. Spiritual revival is promised to come. But they are longing for a better day. A better temple. A better king. A Messiah. It says in Zechariah 9, verse 11, Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. The blood of the covenant pointing to the blood of Jesus, pointing back to God's promises in the covenant of grace. I will be your God. You will be my people. What God has said since the days of Adam and Eve's sin, the promise of a Messiah to crush the head of the serpent, well, that Messiah is here. He will come to liberate Israel, especially the temple. A huge crowd is gathered. People have come with Jesus and the disciples, and from other places in Israel to Jerusalem. It's Passover time. Josephus says maybe there's two million or more people who have come. Since the days of Josiah, 600 B.C., it was mandatory to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. John's gospel tells us they are waving something in the air. Do you know what that is, children? Palm branches. You might think, that's strange. Palm branches are found near that part of Israel. At the Feast of Tabernacles, fathers and sons would wave them and weave them together. And even more immediately in the history of Israel, these people would remember something that had happened not more than 200 years before this point. Antiochus IV Epiphanes had done a horrible atrocity, sacrificing a pig in the temple. There was a response an insurrection, an uprising. 
A man named Judas was a Hebrew Robin Hood, basically a real-life Braveheart, raised up, and because of his work, they were allowed, Israel was, to worship in the temple again. They had a feast, a new festival. Do you know what it's called? Hanukkah, still known, of course, today. His brother, Simon, drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem. He's a national hero. They have a parade. They wave what? Palm branches in the air. When they mint their own coins in the 60s, it's a palm branch on the coin. It's a symbol of Jewish nationalistic fervor. They are waving the palm branches, saying Jesus has done a lot of mighty things. He's fed thousands. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. Surely he will toss out the Romans. Our day has come. He will be the greater David, the true king. He will be greater than Joshua, a military revolt. Better than Simon and Judas Maccabeus, who drove out those Syrians. He will be stronger than Samson. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting, Hosanna. They're putting coats in the road which they had done for Jehu over 800 years before when he was the king. How would this king come? All this fervor. And then what's the picture of his arrival on what children? A mother donkey and her baby colt. Donkeys in that day in Israel were even smaller than they are here in America today. A grown man would have to kind of crunch up his knees to be on a donkey. This is a silly sight. This is the king? Why would he ride on a donkey? Is he tired? No, he had walked hundreds of miles. Are donkeys fast? Do they get you places, children, quickly? No. They're silly, they're small, they're humble. He rode on a donkey to fulfill what Zechariah had said 500 years before, a prophecy This is going to happen. God planned it. God sovereignly orchestrates it. Solomon rode on a donkey, so Jesus is not the first king to ride this way. But what a paradox. You would expect a war horse with all sorts of people to come to throw these Romans out with him. Imagine George Washington coming on a donkey. Here we are. Let's get him. Behold your king, it says. Do you see that in verse 5? Behold your king on a donkey? They didn't expect this. But if they had read Zechariah 9, by faith, through the Spirit of God, they would have seen, yeah, look at what the rest of the text says. He's humble. He comes mounted on, on a silly animal as a sitting duck. He knew his time had come, the hour that has been planned from before the foundation of the world where he would not just ride on a donkey but humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, many in that day did not see the strain of the suffering servant passages of the Old Testament. They loved the idea of a king like David but not a suffering savior like Isaiah 53. He was not coming as a political savior of Jerusalem. He was coming to institute a kingdom of humility and justice. The preaching of the peace of the gospel is how this kingdom still goes forth today, beloved. 
through the word of God, this Christ is preached. Will he come in righteousness to judge the wicked? Will he come to deal with the evil that's being done in the temple? Secondly, how does this Jesus who rides on a donkey come into the temple? Remember the question, who is this? Our conceptions of Jesus so much are tied to our culture, and this one will really throw us off. Look at what he does when he comes the next day into the temple. So it's now Monday. Contrary to the pop culture Jesus, Jesus is humble and has righteous indignation. It's a both and, a righteous anger. He enters the temple. The temple's over 100 feet tall. The walls are marble. This was the temple, not that was first built by Solomon. Remember, that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. But the temple that was rebuilt in the days of Zechariah. It was added to by Herod. It was so great and marvelous, although nothing compared to the first temple, but so great in that day that you could see it for miles. The city plan of Israel reveals, one person says, that the temple occupied 25% of the surface of Jerusalem. That's huge. So Jerusalem was not so much a city with a temple in it, but more like a temple with a small city around it. The temple wasn't finished until 63 AD, about 30 years after this event here in Matthew 21, and seven years before the Romans destroyed it. It has, of course, never been rebuilt. This is not the first time Jesus enters the temple to cleanse it. That's what he's here to do, to purify it. John 2 happened earlier. King Josiah, who found the law of God and through whom God brought reformation and gospel repentance and revival to his people. 600 years before, the one greater than Josiah is here to show his righteousness, his power. Who is this Jesus? He is the God-man. Truly God, truly man. He is beginning the desecration of this temple. Later this week, it will be cut and torn from top to bottom as he dies on the cross for sinners. Mark adds that as he comes into the temple, he overturns the tables and drives out the money changers. Literally, he's there to clean house. Drive out, the same word used to drive out demons. He didn't have a bad day. But because he loves his people in righteousness and because he loves the truth, he's coming in meekness, which is strength under control, and in righteous indignation. Why? It says, his house, God's house, which is a house of prayer, has become a den of robbers. Imagine, kids, the caves around Jerusalem. And robbers would go there and they would stash out their stolen goods, and they plot future crimes. So imagine those kind of caves. But more than those caves, this also comes from the Old Testament. Remember what this text is about? All about Christ fulfilling the promises of God from Zechariah, and here in particular from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. 600 years before the coming of Christ, 
He stands between two pillars in the temple. Chapter 7. God's word comes to him. He says, do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Interesting passage. Meaning, don't just say, well, I'm in God's house. Everything's fine. I'm showing up. I'm here. God must be here. Jeremiah says, no, God doesn't act like that. If you are robbing God by neglecting the poor, Jeremiah says, forsaking widows, abandoning orphans, and think, well, I'm going to come to the temple and everything's fine. This is hypocritical worship. The temple in Jeremiah's day was a place for criminals to gather. Yes, there's a remnant. God always preserves his people. They are robbing God of his worship. Living like unbelievers and expecting, then we're just going to show up on Sunday. And God will be here and we'll commune with him and everything will be fine. Jesus still cleanses and sanctifies his church today, loved ones. They are commercializing religion. Here's a discussion over lunch. In many church buildings, the gospel of Christ is gone. The spirit of Christ is gone. The worship of the triune God has disappeared. The glory of God is absent. But when God brings reformation to his church, he starts with worship. It happened in the Reformation. It happens here in Matthew 21. But for the grace of God, go we. What's happening in Jesus' day that would bring about the quote from Jeremiah? Do you wonder that? There's money being exchanged. Money being exchanged is not evil. That's happening in this day in a way, however, that is not in accordance with what it was supposed to be. Here's the explanation. If you come to Jerusalem for the the Passover, you bring ox, pigeons, sheep. You notice the word pigeon in the text? The pigeons were, were for those who are particularly poor. You would bring them perhaps a long way as you walk to the city. Josephus said there were perhaps 250,000 sheep brought in during Passover at one point. We don't know that for sure, but there were animals everywhere. It's like a stockyard. It's like the state fair on steroids. The sounds of animals, the smell of animals. A lot of people, however, wouldn't either bring their animal because it's too far or their animal wouldn't be accepted because you don't just bring anything to the temple, right? You don't say, well, this is kind of the runt of the litter. I'm just going to get rid of this and bring this to my sacrifice. Leviticus said the spotless lambs had to be brought without defect, without any sort of external problem to symbolize Christ, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb who is pure. What's happening when the animals are brought is they wouldn't be approved often, and then you would have the selling of animals for an exorbitant price. Like going to a baseball game, a movie. You want to buy popcorn? You're going to have to pay, right? So this five-cent pair of doves or pigeons that's worth a nickel would be sold for $4. Price gouging. The outer court of the Gentiles was turned into a marketplace. They would exchange the animal and exchange the money. So they'd charge you if you brought a certain currency for the temple currency you had to pay, plus the temple tax. The point is, it's being commercialized. How often is that happening today? 
the commercialization of Christianity. Jesus says, you made it a den of robbers. My house shall be called, what does he say? A house of prayer. That's a synecdoche, meaning it refers to the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the singing of God's people and prayer, all of it together. That's what worship's about. That's what the church building, wherever it is, should be about. That's what the temple was supposed to be about. The language, again, comes from the Old Testament. This time, 1 Kings. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, Solomon said, yes, God, this will be a house of prayer and praise to you. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be all the glory. Why? Because of your loving kindness, Psalm 115. This is also right out of Isaiah 56. My house will be a house of prayer for whom? What do you think? Just Israel? Isaiah 56. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Nobody is excluded from the house of God because of ancestry, because you're a Gentile, or because of defect, because you're a eunuch, or have suffering, afflictions, and illnesses. The house of God is a house for the nations, for the weak, for the helpless, for the needy, which is all of us. We need the Lord. And here is the messenger of the covenant to fulfill Malachi 3, coming to drive out these money changers because they have made it all about themselves. They are not caring for the nations. They are not caring for the poor, the blind, the lame. Jesus' blood was shed for people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. That's why he's come. He is the true priest. Going back to Adam, Adam was to keep the Garden of Eden, which was a temple, from defilement. Instead of driving out the serpent, he gave ear to the word of the devil. The temple is defiled. The land of Israel, the Levites were to keep the tabernacle pure and the temple pure. They didn't. Now Christ comes as the last Adam, the true priest, the perfect high priest, the better and true Levite, to cleanse what was meant to be holy for God, for his people, for the glory of his name, for the love of his people. There's something significantly theologically rich here. Christ is the true temple. He is the place where you meet with God. He is the word made flesh. The entire Old Testament temple is pointing to him. He is the glory of God that filled the first temple of Solomon with glory. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God present in human flesh. He didn't replace the temple. He is the better and final meaning place of God and man. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the presence of God. He is the lampstand, the light of the world. The showbread given from heaven. He is the bread come down from heaven that we would never hunger. He is the one who makes atonement for us in the most holy place. He died on that cross as the true and perfect sacrifice for our sins. He is both the high priest and the lamb who is slaughtered in the place of sinners out of love for every one of his people. He is your sole anchor. 
When he died, that temple was torn. When he was raised from the dead, the true temple rises from the dead. And you who are in Christ by faith, you are the temple of God. His spirit dwells in you and preserves you. The question is, how do we respond? Third, who really is this Jesus? The king, the high priest, God in the flesh, the one to be worshipped. When he enters, all of the city is stirred up. The crowds say, who is this? And they're thinking, we know about him, but really, who is this? They said he's a prophet. They're astonished. But a prophet? Well, he is God's final and true word, yes, He's much greater than a prophet. He's a perfect prophet, priest, and king. But just prophet? Just a messenger? No. This is God standing before you. He's a king, they said. Much more than an earthly king. He's come to deliver us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our sin and the just wrath of God on us. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a king. You notice how so many today are drawn to Jesus for similar reasons. We can be so drawn to want to find a savior, a political deliverer, someone who will do it and finally accomplish what we want. Jesus has come to deal with a much bigger problem than we often realize horizontally. Look at how the religious leaders respond to him. If the crowds are astonished and kind of fickle, the religious leaders are furious you notice? Verse 15, they are indignant. This is not a righteous anger. This is a sinful boiling up inside. I'm mad at you because you are doing something I don't like you doing and I don't think you should be doing kind of anger. We all know that in our hearts, don't we? What are they mad at? You see what the passage says? They're mad because of what Jesus is doing for blind, lame, and children. Here come the blind and the lame, verse 13. They are being healed by Jesus. This is the last mention of Jesus' healing in the Gospel of Matthew. They're probably in the outer court of the Gentiles. A lot of people didn't want the blind and the lame anywhere near the temple. Jesus heals them, reminding us as a church, we are to care for those who are in particular physical and financial need, hurting, marginalized, lonely. The mercy ministry of the church and part of us is looking around at each other saying, this is the family of God to love, to care for. Word and deed, body and soul. God made you, God cares for you, God has given you a church to love you and care for you. You are not alone. Don't think that when you go home today or tomorrow, that you're all alone. If you're suffering affliction, don't think that you have no one to care for you, to help you financially, prayerfully, as a friend, as someone to listen to you. Jesus cares for those who are blind and lame. He heals them. The needy may come and find Jesus here at this church. And what about the children? The children are the ones, it says, shouting, Hosanna. The children are trusting and worshiping God. That 
along with the healing of the blind and lame, is what makes the chief priests indignant. Jesus quotes Psalm 8. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Another Old Testament quote saying, he is God. This was a claim to deity because the words of the psalm are praise to who? To God. Jesus is saying, I'm here, God in the flesh. Did Jesus silence the children, kids? Did Jesus say, don't come to me? No, we just saw that a few chapters earlier. He loves you, children. And he says, unless you become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. The crowds are astonished. The chief priests are indignant. The children are praising. The blind and the lame are healed. The disciples, they still don't get it. It's easy to be hard on them, but these things are spiritually discerned, aren't they? Later on, the Spirit of God will come, and they will understand these things. But John 12 says they didn't understand it at this point. How about Jesus himself? Luke tells us, after the triumphal entry, riding in on a donkey, do you know what Jesus did? He broke into a loud weeping, a wail over the massive unbelief that he saw in Jerusalem. Beloved, do you know the things that make for peace today? What's your response to this Jesus, your perfect prophet, priest, and king? Have you embraced him as the son of God and the savior of sinners? Have you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Jesus, save me from my sins. That's why he came, Matthew 121. Jesus, you are Hosanna. You are the king of kings. He is the Passover lamb who would be sacrificed in our place. By his spirit, we are united to him to trust him and to love, obey, and worship him. Beloved, we all worship someone or something. As one person says, if the Lord were to come to his temple today, and we, by his grace, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, not the building, of course, but the people gathered to worship, what would he find in our hearts? We need his grace because all of us have struggling, divided, distracted hearts. We need the grace of repentance to rather than pridefully trust in ourselves, to humble ourselves before Christ and see that we are to be like little children, humble before God, tasting his goodness, his love, his grace, his saving mercy. Do you know God by faith as your Savior? Do you trust him? Beloved, know that this Jesus who came as a king will return on a white horse, not on a donkey, but to judge the living and the dead. His rule, Zechariah says, will be from river to sea to the ends of the earth. He will come in glory to stamp out all evil. It will be a complete renewal. He will reign over the new heavens and the new earth. Righteousness will dwell there. And all those who come to him by faith can taste of his goodness, his saving mercy now and forevermore. Who is this Jesus? Not just a good man. Not just a wise prophet. Not just a good teacher. He is God's king. The son of God in the flesh. Our high priest. 
and we look forward to the day when palm branches once again will be waved. Do you know that Revelation speaks of this? A great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in the white robes of Christ's righteousness, washed in his blood, with palm branches waving in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Emmaus Road, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen. Let's join together and sing, turning to page 10 as we stand. <laughs>